So Jay, Wolverine is definitely Canadian, right? Yes, Miles. Wolverine is Canadian. But he was a CIA agent. You know, I'm not sure if he actually was. I know he worked with the CIA, but I think he might have officially been with Department K at the time. And Department K are the shady guys behind Weapon X. Right. So what was he doing with the CIA? Pretty much whatever the plot called for. I do know that he ended up teamed with the Parkers for a while. The who? Richard and Mary Parker. Those names sound super familiar, but I can't quite place them. Spider-Man's parents. What? I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 176 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to anyone who came over from OPB's State of Wonder. Yeah, we were on Oregon Public Broadcasting, and it was kind of awesome. It was surprisingly professional. Like, we're used to the, the world of slightly janky podcast recording, which is great, don't get us wrong. But with that, they have, like, parking spaces and stuff. Yeah, no, April is a grown-up. I know. It was super rad. And if you want to listen to that, um, I believe we have that posted on Twitter and we can put a link in the as mentioned as well. Yeah, there will be a link just on the blog by this by the time this episode goes up as well. So what do we have for the listeners today, Jay? Today, we are heading back to Wolverine's solo title in an attempt to appease the angry Wolverine gods and hope that we can get at least one storyline that he isn't the center of in everything else. Although, to be fair, we know because we've read ahead that that's not actually going to work. So we're going to be covering a storyline that may be called the Shiva scenario and may be called Dreams of Gore. But if you're mostly familiar with the X-Men cartoon, you'll recognize a lot of it from the episode Weapon X Lies and Videotape. I really love that title for that episode. That's, that's clever. I fully approve. Now, like any aspect of Wolverine's backstory that's being introduced at this point, much of what we're going to cover today will have been retconned away between when these issues came out and the present day. So grain of salt there. And I guess that being the case, we should probably recap a little bit about what we do know in 1991 where we're covering. So, previously in Wolverine's complicated past. Wolverine has been around for a long time, during which he has not aged a lot. At this point in the comics, we've only seen him in the 20th century, and I believe the furthest back that we, we've definitively placed him is in the 30s with Mystique and Destiny, although actually that wouldn't have been confirmed until 1999 when X-Men True Friends came out. Ah, but it was written in 1991, so we know that it was at least intended for him to have been around in the 30s at that point. So arguable. We do know for sure that he was working with Captain America in the 40s. In Madripoor, right. Now, sometime when Logan was younger and living in Canada, a burly asshole named Sabretooth killed Logan's girlfriend Silverfox on Logan's birthday, and Sabretooth has tried to kill Logan every birthday since. So uncool. Since then, Logan and Sabretooth have been rivals. Rivals may not be a strong enough term. Now, do we know for sure that that's not just how everyone celebrates birthdays in Marvel Canada, which is a terrible place? That could be. I mean, it is a, a vicious, conspiracy-filled, and Wendigo-ridden nation, from what I understand. That would also explain where Arcade and Miss Locke got it. Yeah, okay, valid point. They just got the idea from Logan and Sabretooth. They seem a lot happier about it, though. Well, I guess Sabretooth seems... Or from Canada. Well, it's consensual in their case. It's not for for Logan and Sabretooth. Anyway, that whole thing with Silver Fox getting killed, that was covered in Wolverine number 10, which we covered in episode 113 of our show. It's too bad that there's not another few numbers we can tack onto the back of that. Alas. But most of the rest of what we're going to talk about right now is from the Weapon X storyline in Marvel Comics Presents, which we also covered in our show. This was written and drawn by Barry Windsor Smith. It's gorgeous. Um, we'll link back to the episode where we covered that as well as 113 in the visual companion to this one. But if you get the chance, I highly recommend taking a look at it directly. That Windsor Smith art is just stunning. Freaking breathtaking. Now, back in the early 70s, according to the Weapon X storyline, Logan was a secret agent in Canada. And it didn't really go so well by the end. After Logan accidentally shot a fellow agent, he turned to booze and drugs and just sort of became a mess. However, before he could run away, he was captured by other secret agents who made a bunch of prisoner references and brought him to the lab Project X, which were run by a bald evil man named the Professor, but not that Professor, as well as a scientist named Dr. Cornelius and their all-purpose assistant, Carol Hines. Weapon X covered Wolverine's skeleton in adamantium, gave him claws on each hand. He was not intended to have had organic claws at this point, although you'll see him often in claws in flashbacks pre-70s here, which is a whole other set of mess in the stake. At this point, 
those appearances are actually continuity errors. They won't have been be retconned into the actual narrative for a number of years yet at this point. And Project X tried to turn Wolverine into Weapon X, who was going to be the perfect animalistic but controllable killer. It didn't go so well. Logan broke through some of the brainwashing and killed basically everybody in the facility. And the story ended as Logan seemed to be about to finish off the main three scientists. Now, we know as readers of other comics that Logan would then spend a while running around naked in Canada picking fights before being taken in by James and Heather Hudson, the co-leaders of Alpha Flight, which was run by Canada's Department H. And after that, we know what happened. Wolverine joined the X-Men and was really surly for a while and seemed like he killed a bunch of characters until they retconned it so he didn't. And that was that. Now, we should point out that the character Romulus, who's like, extra, extra Wolverine. He's secretly behind no. basically all of this. We're just not We don't worry. acknowledge that. We're not going to worry about that did, right now. We did a cold open about it, and let's just sort of repress Romulus until we have to talk about him. Seems entirely reasonable. Oh, he can go sit in the corner with Azazel. <laughs> yes, he knows what he's done, which is basically everything in Wolverine's backstory. And so do we. So, as far as this story, which is covered in Wolverine number 48 through 50... This took place during a run in which Larry Hama was writing for actually quite a long time. He wrote 85 issues of Wolverine from number 31 to number 118 with just a few small gaps. You may also know him as the guy responsible for giving the G.I. Joe characters distinct personalities. Right. I mean, like many action figures slash cartoons that had a comic book tie-in, it was the comics that were responsible for creating a plot. We saw the same thing with Rom Space Knight and uh, Team America. We could never forget Team America. Unlike scores and scores of readers. Now, perhaps as importantly as his role in Wolverine's life, Larry Hama was the creator of Bucky O'Hare, and the theme song from that cartoon has going to be stuck in my head for like the rest of my life. They had a ship called the Righteous Indignation, which is basically the greatest name for a spaceship of all time. Okay, if that, if that were the name of a ship, like a fandom ship, what couple would it be? Okay, we have Righteous and we have Indignation. Yeah. I, I mean, you could just or go we have straight two to characters the... who, in combination, are specifically righteous indignation. Okay, if we're going for the latter, then I vote we just go for one of the biggest ships that's out there, which is uh, Cinematic Captain America and Cinematic Iron Man. I mean, righteous and indignation—it's right there. Uh, the thing is, I, I think Captain America is fundamentally a more indignant character than Iron Man, cinematic or comics. Okay, that's a good point. Well, listeners, if you uh, have an idea for who Righteous Indignation would be a ship for, and I guess you're allowed to use Bucky O'Hare characters in this if you feel like it, then uh, let us know in the comments, because why not? Oh, wait, no, 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 it's Cannonball and Boom Boom. Oh, Righteous and Indignation. Yeah, okay. I mean, listeners, you can still let us know your ideas, but Jay's probably right. I've even got a button that says so. Well, anyway, Larry Hama wrote this arc. What about the art? Um, the art is by Mark Silvestri, who we and you know from years of X-Men, including Inferno. He is fantastic at jumpsuits, facial expressions, and slapstick romance gags, which is one of those things that always sits really oddly, but is, is definitely one of the strengths that he brought to the X titles, and I think continues to with Wolverine. Yeah, and let's definitely make sure we talk some about his art. I mean, the plot here is incredibly convoluted, and I have a feeling we're going to be focusing a lot on that, but Silvestri does a pretty good job, and I'm curious about your take, Jay, as we go through it. Well, I have... One issue with Sylvester's art, that's actually less an issue than a description, but it's something we should bring up because it's something that's going to be happening a lot in this era, and that is Wolverine's size creep. Yeah, he does keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and we saw some of that in the original Weapon X story by Barry Windsor Smith. Like, when Wolverine first showed up in the comics, he was a tiny little dude. Like, he was way smaller than me. Well, I mean, twice as wide, but still. He's he's five foot three. He's supposed to be five foot three. So he's, I mean, he's almost a foot shorter than most of the other X-Men. And he should be. He should be tiny and rambunctious. Right. He's named after Wolverines. Wolverines are small and terrible, just like Logan. So this story that we're looking at takes place in Wolverine Volume 2, number 48 through 50. And we're looking at it now because the earliest post-Claremont X-Men stories are going to be following up on it directly. Yeah, this takes place, I believe, between X-Men Volume 2, number 3, and number 4, which is to say between when Claremont was working on that title and when he wasn't. So it is technically a little bit ahead of where we are in the X-Books. The only places where that's really going to matter are technically the team lineup will figure in here a tiny bit, and they've got the new costumes. Mm -hmm. 
So, according to the cover of number 48, this is actually the official sequel to the Weapon X storyline. Makes sense. One thing I didn't realize is that it came out only a couple months after the Weapon X storyline finished. That was news to me, but kind of cool. Yeah, the Weapon X storyline ran for a really long time. I mean, one of the things I think it's easier to forget going back and looking at it is that it was running in shorter installments. Significantly, yeah. And one other thing we'll see linking this to continuity is that Jubilee is uh, a major character in this story, and she'd actually been hanging out with Wolverine in his own title for quite a while. So, I guess let's dive into Dreams of Gore and or the Shiva scenario. So, we are in Alberta, Canada. Wolverine, Jubilee, and their guide Harry Tabishaw, who was doing some stuff in the previous Hunter in Darkness storyline but we don't need to worry about, they break into an abandoned nuclear research facility in the middle of nowhere. The Hunter in Darkness must have been pretty easy on the artist. <laughs> right, it was just all black panels. It was like that one issue of Alpha Flight that was pure white with just dialogue and sound effects. Yeah, which is comics. I mean, that's... I have, I have strong opinions about that. But anyway, Harry immediately ditches. He is not happy with where they've ended up. There are no birds or animals nearby, and they're at a site that doesn't show up on any local map he knows of. But Wolverine and Jubilee are undeterred. They are possibly undeterred because they're wearing super impressive vests over their costumes. And also Wolverine's got a utility belt, he's got a headband, like, he's accessorizing his accessories. Jubilee, on the other hand, has rollerblades. I'm really bothered by Jubilee's rollerblades. I'm especially bothered that she laces them on to explore a rubble-strewn urban site. Like, that's, that's not an efficient use of rollerblades, buddy. We do have precedent, though, because you may recall that in the storyline around X-Men number 150, Kitty Pride had that amazing costume, and it had roller skates attached as well. Which she fell on her ass off of immediately and ditched almost as quickly. I'm not saying it's a good idea, I'm just saying it's an X-Men idea. Also, roller skates would be easier to clump through rubble on than rollerblades. Well, that's a good point. But this actually brings up something I wanted to discuss. I mean, everybody sees Wolverine as the perpetual mentor to the teenage girl characters in X-Men over the years, and he certainly has been. I think people see Kitty Pride and Jubilee as sort of on par with each other in terms of what a big role Wolverine played in their lives, but do they? they're really not. Yeah, I mean— Who sees that? I mean, I think I did for a long time, but the fact is, Kitty was Wolverine's uh, mentee, I guess, in the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries, a little bit of X-Men, and that was really about it, but Jubilee yeah. is Wolverine's sidekick for ages and ages. Yeah, I, I think that most people who grew up on the animated series especially are aware of that, and I I, I, I really, I think your perception of it is, is not as universal as, as you may believe. Well, that may be true. I just remember there's a scene later on when uh, Shadowcat and Jubilee sort of are, are snippy with each other about that. And I gotta say, with this one, I'm on Team Jubilee. Yeah, well, and then there's one later with Jubilee and Laura Kinney in X-23. Talking, and I think there's one involving Armor later. Like, the fact that they're, they didn't have the role for equivalent periods of time doesn't mean that he doesn't have serial teenage girl sidekicks. Well, anyway, Wolverine and Jubilee head inside to explore, and pretty quickly they stumble upon a Lotus 7, Logan's old car that he got shot in at the beginning of the Weapon X storyline. But before Logan had it, number six did, which reminds me, have you watched The Prisoner yet? Because we, I know we didn't get to last time in, when we did Weapon X, and I'm really hoping we can make Prisoner references this time because... Boy, howdy are there prisoner references to be made here. Oh, man. And it just, it really doesn't work when it's just one person. I'm still stuck in Doctor Who. I gotta catch up before the new Doctor starts. I mean, you it's at least British also. Ten, dude, dude, I have been trying to convince you to watch The Prisoner for a decade now. The Prisoner is, okay, it's one self-contained season in which Stephen Moffat is in no way involved. You do make a compelling argument. Right. Anyway, back in Canada, as opposed to England... Wales. Oh, uh, okay, well, uh, as opposed to Wales. The, the physical uh, location of the villages in Wales, whether it's actually supposed to be in Wales in the show, is never made clear. Hmm, fiendish. But here, Wolverine starts having flashbacks, and we start to, and we get to see a direct retelling of the events from that scene of the Weapon X story. And I went ahead and actually looked back at Weapon X, and... It was interesting. Like, I always wonder whether scenes are going to be reproduced exactly. Because sometimes, for instance, in the scene where Loki kidnaps Iceman from inside ship and brings him into the Thor comic for a couple issues, it's just panel for panel, the same damn thing. And this time it's not. In fact, this time we get to see a little bit more. We get to see Logan fighting back more, super, super brutally. 
As for whether that makes it more or less effective, I don't know, but I do like that we're kept on our toes a bit more since the story is in large part about not knowing what's real. Ah, we call this the Summer's Plane Crash version of Flashback, which is different one every time as relevant to what the artists have seen most recently. Exactly. But as Flashback, Memory Logan hits the ground after being beaten up a whole bunch— real-life Logan does, too, back in the real world. And this is something we're going to see in this story. Logan will have various flashbacks, and he will start reliving them physically. And I don't know, I wasn't really sure how to feel about this. I mean, Logan's pretty psychologically tough. Yes, he's psychologically damaged, but he's mostly good at dealing with that stuff. And it seems strange to me that these memories in particular would take him over when memories uh, of other dramatic events really haven't. What's, what's your take on that, Jay? My take on that is, is that his brain has been mucked around with sufficiently that the intensity of any relative me memory and its impact on him has very little to do with its, its significance at the time or even its reality. Yeah, I'll buy that. And I think that's pretty consistent with the themes of this story. Well, that's pretty consistent with PTSD, isn't it? Um, you know, that is a good point. The certain specific PTSD triggering events, their memory just interacts with them differently. It's in psychology, people often talk about how memories are not the videotape that people think they are. In reality, memories are quite unreliable. But with, with PTSD, accurate or not, it is more of a videotape. It is more of a playback that just is what you are experiencing. I mean, as far as my decade-plus-old degree knows, anyway. Jubilee, because she's a smart kid and has probably seen The Prisoner, is really into the car. Logan is concerned about her rooting through it. You find any souvenirs from some hot dates in there, you just leave them be. I find any panties, I'm not touching them. I was thinking of grenades, darling. Theory. That's just what Wolverine calls panties. I mean, yeah, I'll buy that. But they head into the facility through another unlocked door, and it's just devastation inside. Everything is shredded and smashed, and it's also flooded. And when Logan looks down into the water and sees his reflection, he just sees himself as the naked, wired-up, machine-covered Weapon X. This triggers another flashback as he tears Berserker-style through dozens of soldiers. We see panicked radio chatter from the dying soldiers and green captions. Those were the captions that the professor spoke in, in Weapon X. And I do like that that's a visual motif that carries over from Weapon X because it really puts us back in that world. And that's the point of the story is that Logan's getting pulled back into those events as viscerally as possible. So if the comic's structure can do that for the readers, then that's all the better, I think. Although I do wish the colorists had been a little more consistent later on in this story about it. It would make it work much better. Jubilee, who apparently has been graced with roughly the common sense of a geranium, decides that it would be a real great idea just for funsies to pull a gun on the very high-strung guy with the metal claws. And Logan is taken aback at this, understandably, after he almost guts her. Yeah, don't, don't do that. Good lord. And he asks Jubilee if she's nuts or what? Um, yes. Well, the gun, which was from the Lotus 7's glove box, we find sends Logan back into another flashback of an old mission where him and a shadowed ponytailed man, both of them in gray suits, were being all secret agency in a tenement. More spikes are starting to come through the wall as they work. This is, you know, we know it's a flashback. We know it's something that's off. The other guy, we, we only see in, in shadow and in silhouette, he's, we know he's got a long blonde ponytail, mentions that it's crappy that, you know, Logan's stuck doing this job on his birthday. And when there's more light, we're going to see that this is Sabretooth. And so that's super creepy because we remember from Wolverine number 10 that Sabretooth is the one that A, killed Logan's girlfriend on Logan's birthday, and B, tries to kill Logan every subsequent year on his birthday as well. So not only is this unsettling because Logan clearly doesn't recognize that this is a problem, but it also makes us start to wonder, okay, wait, now they're secret agents working together, like looking all fancy wearing suits? What's going on here? This isn't part of Wolverine's backstory that we've heard about before. What they are doing is going after some sort of terrorist safe house. They kick down the door. And they surprise four people with ragtag military gear. These are Andre, Morse, Carlisle, and Silver Fox. Right, Silver Fox, the aforementioned dead girlfriend. We knew basically nothing about her at this point other than that they were involved. Sabretooth killed her, possibly did some other terrible things because Sabretooth is awful. But now she's hanging out with a bunch of paramilitary types with big crates of weapons? So we're all discombobulated right here as is the entire situation, as Sabretooth and Wolverine's ally Mastodon bursts in and triggers a gigantic shootout. So Mastodon is another agent. He basically exists when the story needs an extra. He's going to die a few issues ahead of here. Um, we're never really going to learn much more about him. 
So Logan is shot in this shootout, as happens, and starts sprouting spikes and tubes from his body. We've seen these spikes before in the Weapon X storyline. They appeared when Wolverine's hallucinations that were, of course, inflicted by the scientists started getting really severe. In this story, we're starting to realize those spikes start appearing, be it out of Wolverine's flesh, out of nearby walls or the floor or whatever, whenever memories are not quite right. We'll see them again manifested in real life fairly viscerally several years from now when Wolverine gets the adamantium ripped out of his skeleton. Exactly. We get a little bit of information as to what's going on from some familiar green captions. It is crucial that the memory implant be bonded to reality, preferably to severe trauma. And the professor continues, memories of pain are vague enough to modify with alternate scenarios. He continues, The brain would much rather believe an unpleasant fiction than a horrifying truth. The implant overpowers reality by being marginally more palatable. It's all in the placement, you see. And this spiky, wild-haired, machine-and-wire-covered Logan rises up and blows Andre away with his guns. Andre falls, and a fake beard and wig fall off of him. It is the professor, the guy whose captions we just saw. I, I just want to break in here and say that if you are wondering whether I'm still angry that you haven't seen The Prisoner, uh, the answer is more than ever. Noted. All right. Now, we'll later figure out that not only is Andre the professor, but Morse is really a guy named Maverick who's going to be a super big deal, and Carlisle is really Kestrel, also known as John Wraith, who's a slightly less big deal. There's so much Wolverine stuff. Oh, he's going to be a very big deal later, Wraith. Yeah, true. I, I guess I just think Maverick is a bigger deal because he had a really cool mask and I liked his trading card. Okay, that's fair. Logan, by now, is utterly losing it. He is fully in Weapon X mode, raving and yelling... Not animal! Not dead! Logan! He's about to finish Silver Fox, and she's got a familiar medicine pouch around her neck. And finally snaps abruptly back to reality, where he has just managed to poke Jubilee's fingertip with his claw as she handed him a keyring that, again, was actually attached to Silver Fox's medicine bag. I really love the way it goes back and forth like this between flashbacks that may or may not be real and what's going on in the present, and we see some overlap, but it doesn't always work. This story, in some ways, is just a collection of confusing stuff that sets up a new status quo, but in other ways, if its goal is to disorient us, if, if its goal is to make us feel like Logan does, I think it does it pretty well, especially in places like this. Here's a question. So I went in reading this, having fairly recently read Weapon X, and a lot of this felt redundant. I felt like they could have done in like an issue or two what was basically done in the length of four because that stuff was so fresh in my mind. How do you think this would read to someone who wasn't familiar with Weapon X series, who, say, was following Wolverine but hadn't been subscribing to Marvel Comics Presents? That's a good question because a title like Marvel Comics Presents, I mean, your Marvel diehards were going to read it, but I would guess that people who just cared about certain characters probably wouldn't. I mean, maybe Wolverine fans would have since he was all the hell over the place in Marvel Comics Presents. I don't know. But for me, even though this is the sequel to Weapon X, I think having a little bit more content to it, having it not fully lean on the Weapon X storyline— yeah. I, thought they, I think that's a good call. Yeah, I agree. I think it's necessary. And again, I'm coming into it having very freshly marathon Red, Red Weapon X, which obviously isn't and shouldn't have been the default that it was written for. Totally. So Logan realizes maybe this isn't uh, the right way to be going about things. He almost killed Jubilee once, then he poked her in the finger actually after that. If only he knew someone with the power to say delve around in memories someone someone with um oh let's call it telepathy gotta get out of this place jube it's jarring loose too many questions questions i gotta ask xavier about look one way or another i gotta run this by a bald professor with glasses <laughs> but i do love this part also as you just referenced i do love the fact that we now have both bald professors in the same story it makes things gloriously confusing but for once a character is doing the smart thing. Like, instead of just going onward saying, no, I have to do this myself or something like that, he's like, oh, this is terrible. I'm going to go ask somebody who's an expert in this sort of thing. Not only that, but it's Wolverine. Right, Wolverine's judgment is like the worst judgment, the worst and the bladiest. It's pretty bad, yeah. He is not generally the most prudent guy on the block, but good good on him. He's, he's doing, doing this one right. He may be being intelligent about this, but he's not necessarily very observant. 
As he and Jubilee walk out the door, we the readers see a giant human-shaped foundry-type mold labeled Shiva, which kind of reminds me of the Proteus holding shell molds from Kings of Pain. We're not going to get Proteus in here. That's probably for the best. It's confusing enough already. You know what it reminds me of? What? A Play-Doh playset. Now I'm just trying to imagine Proteus made of Play-Doh. It's surprisingly easy to picture, actually. You know what's even easier to picture? A master mold playset that, like, has a piece inside you can use to make littler sentinels. And the whole thing's shaped like a giant sentinel. And they come out of its butt. Perfect. Exactly. Okay, whoever has the license to Play-Doh these days, uh, call us. Or I, just use the idea. I guess we don't really have anything. I, I think Play-Doh picks up other people's licenses. Play-Doh's a manufacturer. Like, they, they make, I mean, I guess the, the product itself is trademarked, but. I'm not really sure. How does, oh man, I know how comics licensing works. I basically specifically know how comics written about toys work. Beyond that, I'm entirely clueless. Okay, kids' toy licensing is the world's weirdest, most brutal arena of all time. Like, I mean, the Beauty and the Beast miniseries has nothing on their day-to-day -day operations. Don't go there, man. Don't go there. It is a dark place. I like how you said arena, and my brain also went to the Beauty and the Beast miniseries. Like, that's something I've, I've noticed doing this podcast. Certain concepts are just, I'm not going to say ruined, but uh, let's call it altered forever for us. Retconned, perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, so, that takes us into part two, a.k.a. Wolverine just did a smart thing, but things are still fucked up. I mean, things are always fucked up. It's X-Men. The cover here is great. Mainly the text on the cover. It just says, the journey continues, but below that, if my life be a lie, which is very Silver Age. Yeah, I was gonna say, did they just, like, import Roy Thomas? I hope so. I gotta say, if you're going to import Roy Thomas for one thing, it should probably be little dramatic blurbs on covers. Yeah, agreed. So they're at the Xavier School, which at this point in continuity, although we haven't covered it, has been rebuilt. For now. It's pretty easy to work out. The Xavier School exists. At least two people are there, and they are Professor Xavier and Jean Grey, and they're wearing their 90s outfits. That's all. That's all you really need to know. But it turns out that where they are is already inside a psychic projection. I guess Logan's already explained what's up. They already have their plan, which is to take him inside his own head. And in this case, into a psychic hallway full of metaphysical doors to various memories. It's just like the Doonesbury story where they went in search of Reagan's brain. Oh, it kind of is. In search of Logan's brain. I was just going to make a Psychonauts reference, but I think your Doonesbury reference trumps my Psychonauts reference in terms of references that we always make on the show. Also, it features Roland Headley Jr., which automatically gives it a leg up. Psychonauts does not have Roland Headley Jr., it's true. Tragically, that is, in fact, its greatest weakness. <laughs> Absolutely. So the first door Logan goes through is into, once again, that memory of him, all bestial and larger than he should be, slaughtering guards in the Project X facility. As one does. And Wolverine, man, I really love Larry Hama's dialogue. I'm not sure if I think it's good or not, but I really love it. Let's hear what Wolverine's got to say about his current predicament. Brain feels like it's been shot full of Novocaine. Ears ringing like Quasimodo's hangout. Everything's turning red. Quasimodo's hangout? Who the hell talks like that? Maybe Quasimodo when he's trying to sound cool. Also Logan. Now I just want Logan and Quasimodo to hang out. They're both, I don't know, short, and uh, Canada's kind of French. You're, you're stretching it, man. Yeah, that's probably true. Well, Ooh, you know what they could do together to bond? You know what they could do that they might really both enjoy? What's that? They could watch the fucking prisoner. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, well, now I need to watch it just so, like, you know, we can keep our episodes on track from now on. <laughs> so, amid the various dialogue of soldiers dying and being sad about it, and the green professor captions that are coming through over the PA, Logan realizes this isn't real. He's not really here. This is a memory. He's just here to find answers, but it's hard not to get caught up. He keeps getting pulled into it. The same way we saw him physically moving around to match the flashbacks he saw in the Project X facility before, now he's in the psychic realm. That shit's even worse. We jump into a second memory at this point. Suddenly, he and Sabretooth are wearing military fatigues, and they're in a bar in Cuba. Also, they have a lot of pouches. Boy, do they have pouches. Because even if it's the 60s at this point in continuity, man, it is always the 90s in here. They also have different code names. Sabretooth is El Tigre and Wolverine is Emilio Gara. Okay, those code names are great. 
they kind of are. One of the things that I enjoy here as we start building Wolverine's immensely complicated past is realizing just how much secret agent nonsense he got up to that he doesn't remember. And as we start trying to question what's real and what isn't, the fact that it is specifically spy genre stuff, in my opinion, just adds to the whole chaos. Yeah, man, Wolverine's like James Bond, but way more violent and less smooth days are pretty fun. And again, you know, I said it last episode, I will say it again, I would pay many, many actual cash monies for a series about him and Destiny and Mystique running around being badasses in the 30s. That would be pretty wonderful. And honestly, like, if you're going to bring Chris Claremont back for one thing, I think that would be a fine choice for it. Now, on television in this bar... Wolverine and Sabretooth see John F. Kennedy's assassination. Sabretooth comments that the government managed to set up a patsy, and so now it's his and Logan's turn to clean things up, but we don't have time to find out what they mean by that because a bunch of local soldiers burst in. I think that you might be remembering some of what they see on the TV wrong because the TV says that Kennedy was assassinated a few, a few days ago, and what they're actually watching, what they see happen is the assassination of Lee Har Harvey Oswald by Jack Ruby. Oh, I think you're right, yeah. But these soldiers have been informed of the presence of American spies in Cuba by... Someone who got different code names here, but eventually it becomes clear must be Silver Fox. I really enjoy how many surprising roles this lady plays, given that she started off as basically refrigerator contents. Maybe we should explain what that means. It occurs to me. That's a strange phrase if you're not familiar. All right, uh, the phrase women in refrigerators was, I believe, coined by Gail Simone in context of her website of the same name. And it referred back to the death of, um, it was it was in reference to the death of one of Hal Jordan's girlfriends. I do not remember which. My head is full of Marvel continuity. DC is sort of a vague um, elsewhere, who was chopped up and stuffed in his refrigerator and basically used as plot, and her death was basically used as plot fuel. And women in refrigerators tracked female characters who were killed, maimed, depowered, etc. as means to direct a male protagonist on a you-touched-my-stuff revenge storyline. And Silver Fox originally was pretty much exactly that, but now we're seeing her do all sorts of other stuff. Um, yeah, she is, she is a badass in her own right, and she's clearly a major player in the same scenarios that here Wolverine and Sabretooth are, although often at odds with them. Now, Logan retreats out of this grand melee through the back into a hall full of a bunch of different kinds of doors, one of which looks like it's from a cabin and has Logan plus Silver Fox carved into it. And Logan remembers carving that with his father's knife, his father who he can't remember. First of all, his father's 100% a red herring. Second, this door bothers me. Bothers me deeply. Because one of their names is much longer than the other. One of their names should be higher than the other in the heart because the top of a heart has more space for a full name and then you don't have to have Silver Fox spilling out into the margins. Come on, Logan, think about it. I'm just saying Logan should have consulted Tom or Zakowski. That guy's a master of fitting long words into tiny bubbles. Ah, uh, but he would have hyphenated one of them. That's probably true. But as Logan opens this poorly lettered door, there's nothing behind it. At which point Professor Xavier and Jean Grey appear to tell Logan that this is a constructed memory block, that some of Logan's memories are fake, which we the readers have probably gathered by this point, but some of the memories are also traps. Jean is worried. She thinks that if Wolverine goes through too many of the trapped doors, he might revert. That in this story, Jean's role is basically to translate everything the professor says into regular English. Yeah, she's not really a character so much as, I don't know, a, a window or a tool. It's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, so she does that, and she, she translates between the professor and Logan, and she gets vaguely worried. It's been a remarkable kind of in, in this seeing the characters approaching their animated series roles, and it's kind of frustrating because it means that my favorites all get sidelined. Jean was indeed super boring in the animated series, but Logan doesn't believe what Jean's saying. He's kind of offended. What? I could become an animal again, Gene? Isn't that something that doesn't know where it came from? Same difference. Pain and me are old buddies. I gotta see this out. Actually, Logan, many animals do know where they come from somewhat better than people do. In fact, some kind of innate sense of navigation is common to many species. This is a bad analogy. So Logan wanders off, you know, psychically, into these trashed, graffitied halls, 
and back into Windsor, Ontario, into the memory from last issue, where Logan, Sabretooth, and Mastodon, in their gray suits, have been fighting Silver Fox's group. But in this version of the memory, they won. I mean, they're all shot up, but Sabretooth just briefly points out, oh, we had bulletproof vests. I love how disorienting this is. I love the fact that it seemed to be clearly one way, but through some stupid piece of, like, bullshit retcon, it's totally not. This is an area where the worse the retcons are, the better the story works. Wolverine recognizes Silver Fox, but it's increasingly clear that she doesn't recognize or remember him. Is this memory real? Then the terrible thing that happened at the cabin was a lie. This must be the truth. And Silver Fox uses his moment of disorientation to grab his gun and try to empty it into his head, but it's out of bullets and she wasn't counting, which, you yeah, know, that's, that's a bad secret agent move. You should always count bullets, Silver Fox. You know, it's screwed up memories. It's like dream logic. It doesn't necessarily make sense. Look, about two-thirds of what I know about being an effective secret agent I learned from Archer, so... Yeah, it's like 90% count counting bullets, 10% alcoholism. And, you know, don't forget the misogyny. There's some of that, too. Yeah, but that always screws him over, so... Good point, good point. One of the things I like about that show... But as far as where those bullets went, why they went into Andre, the guy that Logan shot that looked like the professor. And by Andre's bleeding head, we see a calendar. And the image on the calendar is the cabin that Logan and Silver Fox lived in. And Logan starts to wonder, wait a minute, did I just construct this memory from a picture I saw once? Was there nothing real to one of my most important memories? So Wolverine cuts through the wall and... As it turns out, not only is this a surreal scenario, but it's a surreal Dark City scenario because it's just space outside. He looks back inside and what used to be a mere normal bloodbath is now a bloodbath with a bunch of spikes coming out of the walls and ceiling and floors like impaling everybody and it's all colored red and it basically looks like hell. Do you want to upgrade your bloodbath for an additional $1.25? Oh man, uh, is that Grande or Venti? It's always confusing. I have no idea. No idea. Well, Wolverine's confused as well, because suddenly he's naked and covered in machinery and in the woods. He's Weapon X again. Are you kidding? This is like the scenario for which he is best equipped in life. That may be true, but this is a scene we saw in Weapon X. It's Logan in the woods first being tested with the remote control that the Professor and Cornelius and Carol Hines installed. He's about to fight a bear. Here we get a little more captioning explaining what's going on. So he, he perceives the bear the way they want him to perceive it. And we see a couple variations on this flicker through. And in my favorite one, the bear has a gun. I'm just saying, like, bears are dangerous enough as it is, but that just makes it a little worse. Do you think that um that naked Russian bear guy from the Soviet super soldiers, Ursa Major, ever carries around a Tommy gun while he's a bear? Which reminds me that Russian superhero movie, The Guardians, one of the most memorable scenes is a giant bear with rotating Gatling guns on its back. I feel really good about that. As well you should. You know what else is awesome and, and can be viewed on a screen, Miles? Yes. Yes, I know. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Well, anyway, after decapitating the bear, gun or not, Logan takes off the goggles that are now part of the Weapon X outfit and sees that the head on the ground is his own. This is some Empire Strikes Back shit going on right here. At that point, a headless, suited Logan appears along with dozens of soldiers, and they just start beating the hell out of him. From the narration, we see that the professor is trying to lock in some kind of a memory, some kind of a psychological something with as much pain as possible. Fortunately, this is just a memory, and the professor, or Professor Xavier and Jean, are there to pull Logan out of it because um, Jean was having feelings because woman stuff. Oh, Logan, don't blame him. I made him stop it. I couldn't stand to see you that way. Jean's judgment was entirely emotional, but mine was wholly rational. And I should pause and say that I am actually quoting the comic at this point. I'm not just making shit up, although I recognize that that sounds like something I'd make up. It's not in this case. Right? It sounds like a parody of <laughs> Professor Xavier and of Jean. And of comics in general. Um, but anyway, I'll continue. I think that if we had allowed you to continue, you would have gone over the edge into utter madness. But there was still psychological damage, and not just damage from the impressive levels of misogyny in this couple of panels. That's more sociological damage, but there's enough damage for, for Logan to feel that he needs to prove a point, which he does by ripping off his shirt, because, I mean, I don't know how else you make points, but... I'm Logan! I'm human! Not an animal! Not a wolverine! 
Um, could you say pain don't hurt in the Wolverine voice real quick? Because I feel like that needs to happen now. Pain don't hurt. Thank you. You're welcome. And so Logan shirtlessly motorcycles off into the distance. So this is actually the last time that we see the brown and orange Wolverine costume. He'll wear it for the first few issues of X-Men Volume 2, which at this point have already come out, but this is where he stops wearing it. John Byrne initially designed the orange and brown costume to make Wolverine look more animalistic. Logan here is abandoning it when he's insecure about being an animal. So at least it's thematically meta-significant. I really appreciate that his instinctual means of proving that he's not animalistic is to rip his clothes off. Honestly, I think Logan's method of proving a lot of things is probably to rip his clothes off. No, yeah, he's like a short, hairy Dalton. Exactly. Now, back in real life, not in one of these weird fantasies, we see the actual Carol Hines. She's calling the Department of Agriculture, using a bunch of code phrases to actually get through, and pretty soon she's on the horn with the professor. Apparently, they both did indeed survive the ambiguous ending of Weapon X. I gotta say, this scene kind of triggered a major existential crisis for me. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so, um, fun Jay's family history story. My grandmother worked for the Department of Agriculture for years, and my grandfather was a spy. Jay? Jay? Are you descended from people who ran the Project X? Did your ancestors create a whole lot of conveniently numbered super soldiers, none of whom really worked out okay? Apparently. I'm just pointing out, Weapon 2 was actually a squirrel wearing the little Weapon X machinery, so if your grandparents were responsible for Weapon 2, then I commend them and salute them. I mean, my grandmother was friends with all the crows in her neighborhood. I'm gonna go ahead and call that a close enough link. Weapon 2, it is. Either way, the professor isn't too worried even if Carol is, as he tells Carol. All the raveled strings of his memory lead only to a dead end called Shiva. And Shiva's only purpose is to kill him. Oh, those dramatic pauses. Which takes us directly into Wolverine number 50. Now, this being an X-Men issue divisible by 25, and especially being a number 50, you gotta do something fancy that you can charge more for, right? Right. So this issue had a cardstock cutout cover. Like, basically, it was a yellow cover that looked like the Weapon X dossier with three big Wolverine claw slashes through it that you could see the page underneath through. It was actually really cool. I super wanted it when I was a kid. I really wanted to trade a bunch of trading cards to my friends so I could get a copy because I couldn't find it in stores. Never worked out. Still don't have a copy. No, that's super awesome. I actually, I, I die cut covers are great. I'm kind of a fan. I mean, gimmick covers are dumb in general, but this is a good one. You know, when it's a cool special 50-page issue and they're actually doing something neat with it, I can I can accept a gimmick cover. And the neat things they do start out with the very first sequence. Right. All right. So let me just get at this out of the way straight off. This issue begins. It begins. This is our tone setter. It's Wolverine attacking the helicarrier on a motorcycle, and it is every bit as delightful as you would hope. Seriously, this, this scene, this is 100% what I am here for. This is how you have fun with an indestructible protagonist. Like, good job, small hirsute Canadian man. I am with you today. Well, you can't forget that there's also some setup for this. It, it's not just immediately Wolverine motorcycling through the air into S.H.I.E.L.D.'s gigantic flying submarine. Oh yeah, he totally rides his motorcycle into an elevator and then rides the elevator up. But he also pushes it up some stairs to get to the roof. That's how committed Wolverine is to setting up this impressive action sequence. He pushes a motorcycle up stairs. So, so this also drives home a really important, what, what to me is a really important character point, which is that Wolverine is the best at what he does, and what he does is troll the shit out of intelligence organizations. Right? Also troll the shit out of Bruce Banner, like that time he replaced all of his clothes that he packed for his trip with purple pants. That is exactly what I was thinking of. So this scene, and really a lot of this arc, just makes me go back to X-Men Origins Wolverine, the movie. Not just because it's our showcase for Wolverine's history. In fact, not at all because of that, but just because of how committed everything is to excess. And, you know, I'm starting to come around, Jay, to your view of X-Men Origins Wolverine. Like, part of what makes it... That it's beautiful and perfect? Yeah, part of what makes it good is just how over-the-top bonkers it is, how unapologetic it is in being stupidly awesome. Okay, I will point out, however, that it is actually less over the top than this because Wolverine only fights a helicopter while on a motorcycle in that movie. I guess that's a good point. <laughs> Not the entire helicarrier, which he totally does effectively take down here. No, that's good. Yeah, Origins. So I will, I will go to the mat for X-Men Origins Wolverine. It's terrible. 
It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's absolutely fucking atrocious, but it's really fun. And it's, it's, yeah, it's fun in a lot of the same ways that this story is fun, which is to say it gives no fucks whatsoever. Right? Well, Wolverine gives no fucks either because he is here to blackmail Nick Fury into giving Logan his own security dossier, which of course S.H.I.E.L.D. has been gathering for like who knows how many decades at this point. Also, yeah, I want to go back to the, the, the break-in a little bit because based on an offhand comment from Nick Fury, I think Wolverine's motorcycle might also be made of adamantium, which raises some questions that really never get addressed. I mean, adamantium is supposed to be pretty rare on the one hand, but I do know from Hub and Corey at Tighten Up the Defense that at one point Nighthawk built an entire chair out of adamantium just for the Hulk to sit in, so maybe you just have to know the right people. I, I don't even care. You know what? I, I don't care how plausible any of this is. It's beautiful and perfect, and it makes me want to sit down and drink a lot and then watch Die Hard and John Wick back to back. Entirely reasonable. Well, the blackmail does indeed work, which is questionable because the memories that Logan is basing the blackmail off of may or may not have happened, but, you know, whatever. Eh, he gambles and wins. I guess so. But in a shady office building, other things are occurring. You know, shadily. Oh, yes. So this office building is populated by really generic white-collar guys in cubicles. And they are they are sinisterly um, tracing a computer program. They've or they've they've got a computer program that is monitoring file retrievals, and it has told them that someone has retrieved Wolverine's dossier. The scrub who discovers this tells his unnamed boss, and his unnamed boss goes to inform his unnamed boss, who um, is much fancier, and that that unnamed boss has a big hooded cloak and works in a room with a great big Hydra logo on the floor. So either this is Hydra or it's someone who shares their interior decorator. Jay, it's fucking Nazis. Again! They keep coming back! I thought we were done with them after X-Men True Friends. What the hell? I mean, I thought we were done with them after World War II, and yet here we are in 2017. Ooh, 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 harsh but true. Well, anyway, we do have some high-quality techno-babble here as this underling reports to the fucking Nazi. And Jay, I feel like you could do this justice. I can't, though. No, no, Miles, this is all for you, because you are the one who can give this its proper credibility as a an IT professional. You should deli- just deliver this as as you would in a report to your boss about the stuff that it's about. Oh, well, in that case. Which is clearly real tech stuff that people do in tech. Our penetration of the NSA computer system has yielded a Class three anomaly. The DCI used its priority code to pull a set of records that have been dormant for two decades. The cross-reference set up a flag in our monitoring system. Actually, you know, now that I say that out loud, that does sound pretty believable. All right, now explain the tingler. Uh, it's a great movie with great special effects. All right, yeah. This flag was apparently activated by the name Logan, which sounds like a real dubious plan because it's not all that uncommon a name. But, you know, whatever. You do you. Now, Wolverine, using the information in his S.H.I.E.L.D. dossier, finds this place, busting into the Department of Agriculture in his best John McClane cosplay, a cigar dangling off his lip, and demands to see the professor. Oh, man, my favorite part of this episode, for the record, was the moment when you mixed up John McClane and John McCain. It won't make it into the final, but I'd like it to be known that it happened, and I'd like to ruin Die Hard for everyone forever now. Oh, man, I think you kind of did. Nah, I just lived to tell the tale. That was all you, buddy. Damn it. Well, anyway, when the secretary says there's nobody by that name, Wolverine insists. Oh, boy, does he ever. This is my favorite line in all of this series, by the way. Is that so? then the file I got from the NSA must be wrong. I guess this pest control section was never set up 20 years ago as a front for a real nasty, dirty tricks project. I guess that guy I smell cowering behind this door couldn't possibly be the professor, sometimes known as Andre in my dreams. This reads like something a very upset Troy Barnes might yell in the dreamatorium. I mean, Andre in my dreams just sounds like this summer's most romantic and heartwarming comedy. I... My flashback with Andre? (laughs) Perfect. Well, as it happens, the professor and Carol Hines are behind the door, but the scene is still pretty ridiculous. Now, Wolverine stabs through the steel-reinforced door just to make a point, but then stalks off, telling the secretary to tell the professor that he's off to Windsor, and if Hines wants to tail him again, she should try to stay downwind. The professor, in turn, tells Hines that they're also going to head to Windsor to make sure that this mysterious Shiva does his job. One thing that's interesting here before we continue is that the professor is shown with a hook hand. Like, you know, his hand was severed and he got a a prosthetic, like one of the just the simple metal ones. 
that doesn't really jive with what we've seen before. The professor did lose his hand in the Weapon X series, but that was in a sequence that was very clearly a hallucination created by him and Dr. Cornelius and Carol. So I don't know if this is meant to, to call into question the events in the Weapon X series themselves or what, but I kind of like it. I kind of like that inconsistency. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to call into question the events of the Weapon X series. Well, Wolverine does indeed head to Windsor, and the X-Men come along, mostly so they can just hang out on the Blackbird and leaf through 150,000 pages of documents and two shoeboxes full of floppy disks. Yeah, they're literally just along for secretarial support. I really actually do not get why the X-Men are here at all. It's completely damn pointless. Jean's worried because Wolverine's wearing his old yellow costume. That's right, from here on out, Wolverine's going to be wearing that for quite a long time. And he's also, what, like meaner, less polite, more savage? Definitely taller. I don't know, though. I'm not really seeing the change in mannerisms that she keeps going on about. Yeah, that's that's something that kind of weirds me out here, because she and the professor both bring it up and, and talk about how, how Wolverine is reverting and it's terrible, but he's not, I don't think. I, I'm not really seeing what this big significant difference in his behavior is supposed to be. He's still kind of a prickly asshole. He just raves a little bit more between one-liners. Mm prickly asshole. You should really see a doctor about that. Ugh. Or possibly an eye killer. Ooh, right. Call back! As Wolverine heads in, and as the professor and Hines watch him from the rooftop, and are themselves watched in turn by Hydragoons and their mysterious commander in hover cars, Wolverine finds some truly strange shit. So the place where Wolverine ends up appears to be a warehouse full of sound stages. It's got a bunch of numbered sets with names like Backwoods Saloon, Senior Prom, and Terrorist Hideout. And he recognizes one of them. He recognizes Terrorist Hideout specifically. It's the apartment from his memory of, of the shootout with Andre and company. But this time, instead of being in Windsor, Canada, it's got details that imply that it's in San Francisco, you know, brochures for local stuff and a, a flat, a painted flat with a San Francisco sk skyline outside the window. And he keeps going through more and more sets, including several he's never seen before. But there's no set for the cabin, which he takes to mean that his memories of his time there with Silver Fox must have been real. That is not a real sensible to conclusion to draw from this. This memory was not faked using props at this specific location. Ergo, it must have actually happened. Like, there's some gaps in this logic. I think he used up his lifetime supply of being sensible with deciding to bring Professor Xavier and Jean into this. Now he's back to his usual judgment. Valid point. But this faulty conclusion so elates Wolverine that the professor picks up, and I quote, a mind blast of the most pure and utter happiness. And the X-Men interpret Wolverine's transcendent elation in the middle of a hazardous mission into the depths of his own dark memories as meaning that everything is going swimmingly and he doesn't need backup, which also strikes me as some real shaky logic. Perhaps, but we're forgetting the most important part of Wolverine's assumption that his cabin memories are real before he thought the cabin was fake because he saw it on a calendar inside the terrorist hideout set. Now he sees that same calendar on the ground, but instead of a picture of a nice cabin in the woods, it's a picture of Castroville, California home of the giant artichoke, and now I just want Wolverine number 10 to retroactively have been about that instead. That would be great. Wolverine going sightseeing at a bunch of roadside attractions. What I want out of this is for Wolverine, having discovered the calendar, to decide that artichokes aren't real. That could be, that could be, like Mountains and Night Vale style. I'm into it. Well, anyway, after dodging an old-school pit trap, Wolverine makes his way to the vault door from his dreams, beyond which lies Shiva. And... Apparently, this is some sort of a test. Other people have tried to get this far, but none of them have what Wolverine has, which is the key that Jubilee found back in number 48. This really makes me wonder, who tried to do this first? Like, I would love to see who all those various skeletons in the bottom of the pit trap are, because we do see a ton of skeletons impaled on spikes, but like, you know, real spikes this time, I assume. Who are they? They're all clones of Sabretooth. Oh, man, that's true. There are a lot of different saber tooths. Okay, I'm going to buy that. I'm going to say that's canonical. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just, just a stack of them. Well, Wolverine opens the door, and sure enough, inside is Shiva. We finally get to see Shiva. And Shiva is not an ice goddess, not even a pair of vaguely homoerotic robot motorcycle ice goddesses like in Final Fantasy 13. Okay, Miles, 
Miles, you know that the Final Fantasy Guardian forces are and summons are not actually accurate representations of the deities they borrow their names from, right? Well, I know that now. I didn't know that the first time I read this story. Oh, buddy. This Shiva bears just as little resemblance to its mythic antecedent. What it basically is, is is a big robot strife with Apocalypse's head, but chrome. And I really enjoy uh, Hama's Wolverine narration here. After Wolverine immediately just guts and dismembers Shiva, put a fancy suit on an android and he thinks he's hot stuff. That an axiom should be sometimes known as Andre in my dreams. <laughs> I'm never going to get sick of that line. I just, I, he just, he says it like it's going to help her figure out who this guy is. I think at this point, Wolverine is so caught up in his own narrative that he's really stopped paying attention to whether it makes any sense to the people around him. Kind of like some X-Men writers do. Look, I'm going to start using that though. When I'm trying to explain people, I'm going to be like, you know, so-and-so writes for this company, Rode a giant horse in my dream last night. Remember? Remember? <laughs> exactly. Well, it turns out Shiva may have been destroyed very quickly and easily, despite looking like a robot strife with Apocalypse's face. I mean, that doesn't really stay durable to me, actually. Yeah, I suppose so. But suddenly there's another Shiva, and another and another. Shiva is a program that inhabits a series of bodies and learns every time, and it starts getting better and better at fighting Wolverine. He also gets really offended when Wolverine refers to him as a robot, which is never not funny. Pretty great. Back on the Blackbird, what's going on? Well, the X-Men, with nothing else to do, have decided to provide some exposition as they go through all of Wolverine's files. We learned that Weapon X was intended to create a pool of super soldiers, yada, 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 but they were going to mind wipe them so they could serve as sleeper agents in the general population. And there was something about the suppression of aging. There's also a list of names, starting with Wolverine's, and then the professor is trying to figure out why Wolverine's is first on this list, to which Jubilee suggests, because he's excellent. Oh, Jubilee, you're adorable. We also see Sabretooth, okay, Fox, presumably Silver Fox, Kestrel, Vol, Mastodon, we've seen him, Wildcat. Okay, so now we know what Weapon X is. It's just literally fucking Foxhound from the Metal Gear Solid games. I think it kind of is. And some of these characters we're going to learn more about. Like, Kestrel is really John Wraith. Maverick is, I guess, just not listed. Whatever. Some of these characters we're never going to see. I don't know that we ever find out what the deal with Vol and Wildcat are. So Wildcat could actually be Wildchild because we only see the first letter and a half of the second word. But I assume that at this point, based on what existed in continuity, it was intended to be Wildcat and might have been retconned later. That said, I'm more concerned about whether this means Wolverine is a super baby. Tell me more about how I'm a super baby. All right, Snake, but only after you change controller ports, turn around three times to the left, and listen to this 45-minute diatribe about nuclear proliferation. Well, a mysterious stranger busts into the room in which the professor and Carol are watching, knocks Hines the hell out, calls the professor Andre, and recognizes the room that Wolverine and Shiva are fighting in. That's right, this, the woman in the hood, the woman apparently running at least a large portion of Hydra, is fucking Silver Fox. Oh, snap! So Shiva moves on to his finishing move, which is basically a really complicated PTSD trigger. He's using electronic pulses to set off the implants in Wolverine's brain, which in turn activate, quote, a cataclysmic memory backlash, which is pretty much what it sounds like if what you're imagining is Wolverine being surrounded by flashbacks yelling, no, as a great big sound effect. But Wolverine's pretty badass and manages to resist and stab Shiva extra, extra hard. Meanwhile, Silver Fox is grappling with memories of her own, in her case, her kind of crappy and clearly fake senior prom, which she realizes must be a fake memory because Wolverine would never actually be mean to her. Now, what may not be fake is the cabin because she remembers it and remembers it the same way, except then the professor says that maybe the cabin's also a fake memory that keeps breaking through the suppression program in every subject. It's very confusing and ambiguous, which I dig. Well, and it's extra ambiguous because it's never clear what the professor is telling them just to fuck with them. I mean, this is a guy who thought rewriting their memories would be a great way to make high-level secret agents to begin with. So obviously he is an at best unreliable narrator. Back on the plane, the X-Men realizes that the list of names, Wolverine, etc., 
Those are Project X terminations in order of priority. Those are the targets that Shiva, once Shiva reconstructs itself, now that Wolverine has gutted it super hard, is going to go after. Wolverine is still at the top of the list, but luckily for him, he has discovered Shiva's weakness, self-affirmation. Nobody else is just like me. I'm bad to the adamantium-laced bone. And the more you hurt me, the badder I get. Well, Wolverine, you certainly said that out loud. The X-Men decide that they should finally head on inside to see what's going on, and they get there just in time to see Wolverine fully trash Shiva. Because the X-Men are useless in this story. But a woman's scream brings them all downstairs. It's Carol Hines. She woke up and found the professor dead, but his hook hand accidentally reset Shiva to go to its next target and activated all of the units who marched out chanting Sabretooth's name. And, and Wolverine is entirely fine with this outcome. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. The X-Men see this as proof that Wolverine is turning evil or something. But again, this seems perfectly in character with the Wolverine we've seen. He's not evil, he's just fairly utilitarian and doesn't really have a problem with the idea of a robot army going after Sabretooth. Professor X, nonetheless, feels the need to put a capstone on the presumed consequences of this story. I fear, my X-Men, that the Wolverine that was reborn tonight may be a far, far different man than the one we have known. Heaven help us all. Still not really seeing it, but sure, let's run with that. So this story seems like it was intended to give Wolverine a new status quo, or in some cases, like his costume, an older status quo, like his animalistic nature, an older status quo. And... While the story did have a lot of consequences, I don't think it's necessarily what Larry Hama expected. The personality changes everybody's talking about, I agree, they don't really happen. But what we have now is a way for any X-Men or Wolverine writer in the future to do whatever they want with his continuity, at least up until House of M many years later when Wolverine finally does get his memories back. If you don't like a bit of story, it was an implanted memory. Well, and even post-House of M, there's only so canonical you can make it after you've been crying Wolverine for how many years. Right. I also enjoy that there are some bits from the story that are still ambiguous, like Silver Fox, the cabin thing. Is the Silver Fox who's now leading Hydra, who presumably killed the professor and then ran away, the real one? Who the fuck knows? Not us, not anyone who's written Wolverine, or at least not that they've said. According to Marvel Fact Files number one, the Silver Fox killed by Sabretooth and the Silver Fox who joins Team X, Weapon X, and Hydra were possibly not the same person. The second Fox could have been an impersonator created slash modified by either Weapon X or Romulus. Oh, God damn it! And I dig this. I mean, you know, Wolverine's past has been covered so many times in so many different directions in so many contradictory ways, which, of course, aren't contradictory when you see some of them as having been faked. But I like that for so many years, we never got a full definite picture. That's part of what works for me for Logan, is that he doesn't know, and we don't know either. I've talked about this before, but I think Wolverine's backstory is always more interesting as potential than it is when it's actually played out as, as fact. The more we know for sure about him, the less interesting and the less intriguing he is as a character, I think. Yep. And as we head into the 90s, we're going to both see more backstory and more contradiction of that backstory. So this has been the Shiva scenario, your setup for a decade of confusion. And speaking of confusion, you've got questions. Freddie Bendecki asks on Twitter, my boyfriend is in Antarctica and we listen together as a long distance activity. Aw, that is super cool. Shout out to Freddie and Freddie's boyfriend. Yes. Yeah. Stay warm. And I think I actually met you guys at New York Comic Con, didn't I? You were awesome, if you're the same people. Otherwise, there are two couples, one of whom is in Antarctica, who listen to the show together. And that's pretty cool, too. Anyway. That would be super weird and interesting. The question continues. What are the wackiest Antarctic X-Men events slash plots slash villain hideouts that he should look out for? Okay, Freddie's boyfriend. The thing you really need to keep an eye out for is the Savage Land. It is a tropical jungle, it's in the middle of Antarctica, and it's full of fucking dinosaurs, including one in tiny cut-off genes who will eat your mind. It's also got evil priestesses, cavemen evolved into weirdos by a pre-thematic consistency magneto. Okay, I hear you, but dinosaurs. Valid, but also, according to the Marvel Transformers comics, because you know how Marvel did a bunch of toy licenses? It was the origin of the Dinobots Dinoforms. Their computers saw the oh, dinosaurs. Shit. Yes, exactly. Robot so, dinosaurs. Okay, that falls under the umbrella of dinosaurs and is therefore acceptable as top-tier Antarctic, 
hijinks. Speaking of, if you haven't been keeping current on Squirrel Girl, highly recommended. There were robot dinosaurs recently. It was great. Uh, the Savage Land also has the love children of both Wolverine and Colossus, but Wolverine's is from the Jungle Adventure, so no one remembers it. It's funny how you're assuming that they're all still alive. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, it's the Marvel Universe. Nobody really dies. There are dinosaurs. I assume the dinosaurs eat a fair number of every year's children born in the Savage Land. Well, one person they didn't eat was Gambit, because Antarctica was where the X-Men abandoned him after they found out that he was partially responsible for the mutant massacre. Gambit. Not even dinosaurs want some of this. <laughs> right. And don't forget that there's Magneto's volcano base from the 80s. Yeah, so basically, Antarctica is a happening place to be. It is very dangerous. There are dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are awesome. And actually, so is our next communication from a listener. This is not technically a question, but we wanted to share it because it's really, really good. So an anonymous listener contacted us on Tumblr to tell us about a dream they had. Uh, not a question, but I had a dream last night that you two were working in a Greek hot dog restaurant and also selling comics under the counter. I bought the nine volumes of the Louise Simonson omnibus you had handmade. Also, Miles was a Lilliputian who was swamped by his human-sized beard, and he did not want to talk about it. Keep up the good work and glad to see you have expanded into dream space. Thank you, Anonymous. This is amazing. I like this dream and it is worth fighting for. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't technically a question, so we don't technically have an answer other than, wow, our lives are now better, and listeners, we hope yours are too. The only part of that that doesn't basically correspond to reality is that I really can't imagine a scenario where Miles wouldn't want to talk about his beard. <laughs> exactly. Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and some of those levels of support come with acknowledgement on air from various fictional characters and or concepts. Let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. Oh, E. Oh, Sam Jack. As patrons of the podcast, you deserve nothing but the best. If only Miles had just watched The Prisoner, you would bear the full brunt of my disappointment and passive-aggressive judgment. But no, he had to go and ruin it for all of us. Thanks, Miles. Oh, it's all my fault. I'm too dispirited to even do thanks of my own. Hey, that's the power of the angry Claremontian narrator, buddy. Guess you better watch The Prisoner. Well, I'm sure I'll recover by next time, possibly by watching The Prisoner. But with that... Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're wading into the weird and the eclectic with a catch-all of one-shots, State Fair PSAs, and more. Mm -hmm.